Hello and welcome back. My name is Dr. Christopher Gennari, and this is Great Big History Podcast. Today, we start part three, test three material. The latter half of the 20th century, from 1950 to 1990 to 2000 or so. And today, we start with decolonization especially decolonization of Africa in the 50s and the 60s. This is where Europe gave up the world. If you remember back in part two or the end of part one, we talked about imperialism. And we talked about how the Europeans, white people, owned 85% of the world. They imported their culture. They extracted resources. Well, decolonization is how we get the world that we have today. Where we have lots of countries all running themselves and trying to make the best of the situation. So Europe gives up the world. Why? Why would they give up the world? Well, it's too expensive. It's just too expensive after World War II. War, world War II was so expensive, so devastating, that what European countries, England, France, Germany, Italy, have to do, Portugal and Spain, is concentrate on themselves. Now, Portugal and Spain have little empires, but and they're not involved really in World War II. But the world is going to be much more expensive to control. So let the Americans do it. The Americans want to do it. The Americans want to run the world. The Americans have the money and the willpower to fight the Soviet Union. Let the Americans do it. And increasingly, the Americans in the 50s don't want colonies. They want free trade. They don't want England and France... Running the world because it makes people upset in these other places and makes them go to the Soviet Union. We'll talk about that in a moment. And so if you want to win the Cold War, you can't have European empires. And if you want to make money, you can't have European empires. So we're going to change the 19th century economic system with a system today of markets, with a system today of free trade. Now, that doesn't mean... So as Europeans in the 50s and the 60s begin to retreat, that doesn't mean um, Europeans withdraw everywhere equally. White colonists, for example, try to stay in charge. In Rhodesia, South Africa... Kenya, where you have large white populations, uh, those white minorities try to stay in charge. In Rhodesia, you end up with a civil war that's going to last until the 1980s, until 1980, excuse me, and you get the country of Zimbabwe. And the result of that is that whites, many whites will flee to South Africa and take their wealth with them. 
um, Zimbabwe will have a a powerful white minority that will continue to own some of the best land in Zimbabwe uh, up to the present day. But they are they were increasingly, especially in the late '90s, early 2000s, uh, increasingly plundered by a, their corrupt government. In South Africa, you'll have apartheid until 1992. Apartheid is separation. Until you get Mandela, who will win a Nobel Peace Prize for not having a civil war, for not having, for not having um, uh, a bloody takeover. And you'll get the Truth and Reconciliation Movement. And that, for the most part, South Africa is the one place where whites stay. And they keep their wealth. You don't have a massive exodus of the European white population from the country, taking their wealth with them, leaving the country in poverty. In Kenya, you have what's called the Mau Mau Uprising until 1960. Again, most whites take their wealth with them and they leave. In Algeria, who had a guerrilla terrorist war from 1954 to 1962, which was a very violent war. In fact, it gives us uh, basically the, the template for modern terrorism, for modern guerrilla war, modern terrorism. Um, Americans like to talk about Vietnam, but Vietnam was a much more conventional warfare than than Algeria. Algeria really is the template of the guerrilla terrorist war, uh, and it's a very violent war. And the whites end up having to flee to France. There's, there's almost no white population, and the whites were several million people. There's almost no white population left in Algeria, and so. They will, the white minority populations that moved in, in the 19th and early 20th century, try to stay, they try to maintain their power, and they lose by the 20th century, 21st century, I should say. They lose in basically every place where they were a sizable minority. So what do you end up with? How do these countries get independence? Or what do you get with their independence? And what you get is an independent country based upon European borderlines. Which means you don't get natural countries. Ethnicities are divided. Ethnicities are smushed together. In Europe, you get nations based on nationalities. The Spanish people live in Spain. Portuguese people live in Portugal. And it took hundreds of years and lots of wars. We've spent a lot of time talking about this. To create these countries in which a... 
nationality created a country, expanded that country, and then created a nationality and expanded that nationality. So that France makes peasants into Frenchmen who hadn't been French before, whether they were in Brittany or Burgundy. Africa doesn't get that. When the Europeans leave, they draw up lines and they say, here's your country. There's nothing natural about that in sub-Saharan Africa, sub south of the Sahara. They're all based upon where Europeans happen to control and then who they had allies with so that you have ethnicities that are divided on different sides of a border and ethnicities that are smushed together. Nigeria is a perfect example of this. So let's go. Nigeria in West Africa, Central and West Africa, is has a Christian South and a it's divided on religion. It's got a Christian South and a Muslim North. But those two parts are actually historically different. The Nigerian North is connected to Niger. It's connected to the empires of um, of the 14, 15, 1600s. It's connected to the trade routes that go north across the Sahara. While southern Nigeria is connected to the ocean, is connected to the sea, is connected to oceanic trade, has looked south, was also more a part of the um, slave trade, was more affected by the slave trade. And so Nigeria is also a country that not only has lots of different ethnicities, lots of different languages, but in fact is smushed together from two places that have completely different histories. That do different things. That operated in different ways. Two different histories, two different economies, two different militaries, two different, two different everythings. And so what you end up with is civil wars, lots of civil wars, which bring in the U.S. and the USSR, bring in the Soviet Union. And the reason why is very simple. Suddenly people are living together that don't want to live together. Wait a minute. We're supposed to get a country. Why am I living with you people? We wanted our own country. We didn't want to be dominated by another. We didn't want the Europeans to leave and get dominated by another ethnic majority. Or, and this is how the Europeans ran the show, they came in, when the Europeans came in, they looked around and they said, hey, you're the ethnic minority. You've gotten beaten up for hundreds of years. Because for hundreds of years, the amount of people you have matters in war. 
well, we've got guns and machine guns, which means people don't matter as much anymore. Minorities can dominate majorities. So how about we give you the guns, we give you the training, you let us run the show, you let us take mineral wealth out of your country, out of the land, and when we leave, you keep power. And ethnic minorities said, that's a great deal. Let's do that. And so that's Africa, that's the Middle East, that's lots of places. And so when the Europeans leave, the majority says, hey, democracy. In a democracy, the majority wins. But you see, the minority has the guns. And in a democracy, the minority loses. And then they have to give up their guns. And they weren't so happy about that. And so what you get is civil wars. And this brings in the United States and USSR because one side can go to one side and one side could go to the other. So one side goes to the U.S. and says, hey, we're the majority. We want democracy. And the U.S. says, that's great. We want you to have democracy. You're the majority. Here's some guns. And the minority goes to the USSR and says, hey, the U.S. is funding the other guy. Can you help us? And the USSR says, of course we can. And so in all of these civil wars, they spread. They get more violent. They become more entrenched as outside countries get involved. So what's the effect of this? A lot of wealth is pulled out. We already talked about this when white colonists leave. The wealth is pulled out. There is low education. There is no bureaucracy or experience. The exception with this is India and Pakistan, and we'll talk about that. But the whites, the, the Europeans, the white countries did not prepare Africa for for independence, which was criminal because that was the argument, which tells you that the 19th century argument of the white man's burden, we're going to bring civilization to Africa, is BS. It's a lie because they didn't do it. The argument was you are uncivilized countries stuck in the Middle Ages. We are, or even further back, we are going to pull you, whether you want to or not, into the modern age. And we're going to give you education. We're going to give you Christianity, which Europeans thought was modern. So we're going to give you Christianity. We're going to give you education. We're going to create the new institutions. And in exchange, we are going to tie you dependently to our economies you're going to give us your natural resources. We're going to make cool stuff. And we're going to um, make everybody richer. And none of that happened. And we see this with the bureaucracies. That when the Europeans left, there are almost no colleges. There are almost no trained bureaucrats. There was almost no infrastructure in which to run the country. Congo which becomes Zaire, which goes back to being Congo, is the classic example of this, that when the Belgians left Congo, 
the country fell apart because there was literally no one who could run a country. They didn't have accountants to collect taxes. They didn't have any of the bureaucrats you need to actually run a country. Running a country is hard. You just don't hire people and say, okay, run a country. They need to be trained. They need to be educated. They need to know how systems work, laws work, how to create laws, how to enforce laws. Like collecting taxes, man, is hard. Spending taxes fairly without corruption is really hard. And if you don't have any bureaucratic experience, the country, by definition, can't function. Now, the exception to this was India-Pakistan. And that's because the history of India-Pakistan was different. One, India-Pakistan... India or British India, the Raj, was one, an independent country going back to 3,000 years. So they had a long history of government, of independent government. Two is that to run a place as big as India, Britain needed to bring in and create a domestic bureaucratic group. Um, and we talked about that with imperialism in test one, part one of our class, that after the um, Sepoy mutiny, that Britain was going to run India as a part of Britain. But at the same time, to do so in any kind of efficiency, it was going to have to co-opt. It was going to have to higher it was going to have to create a native pro-english pro-british group that could run it that could do the work and so india pakistan is the exception to that there was a native group now the interesting thing is when we talk about India Pakistan is that native group was heavily Muslim more than Hindu, even though the Hindus were the majority of the population, it was heavily Muslim because the Muslim part the of India, uh, what will become Bangladesh, what will become Pakistan was the richer part, the better educated part, the more economically developed part. And that goes back all the way to the founding of India as a civilization 3,000, 4,000 years ago. Um, that the rivers, the places on the rivers, the Ganges, the Indus, were the richest parts. The wealth always equals education. And so those were parts, for historic reasons, that became uh, Islamic. And... Because of that, that's who the British pull on. So 
when India gets its independence and then cracks into two into India and Pakistan, um, Pakistan actually of the two countries had the advantage. Finally, or finally for this slide, um, these countries are completely dependent on U.S., Europe, and the USSR. They are export-orientated economies. They are completely dependent. So the relationship, so the independence just made more violence and just made more poverty. Economically, it didn't give these countries independence. It didn't change much. If they exported minerals, they continued to export minerals. See Congo. Countries that exported oil, exported oil. They didn't change. They didn't industrialize. They became more dependent, if anything. Because now you don't even have the veneer of Europeans being like, well, let's develop the economy to help us. Now the Europeans are like, well, if you can't get us the oil, we'll go somewhere else. If you can't get us the minerals, we'll go somewhere else. So you have to develop it yourself, which means you can't develop anything else. You have to put your, your money, the small amounts of money you have, into that one industry. So the Middle East is the perfect example of this. The Middle East based on Mesopotamia and the trade routes, was one of the richest parts of the world for as long as civilization existed, for the first 5,000 years of civilization. In the 20th century, they discover oil. Well, that's their civilization. That's their economies. Iraq, Saudi Arabia, the Gulf states, even Iran, have long histories. They don't care. They don't matter. Their economies are dependent on exporting oil. And when oil goes away, so do these countries. Because there's nothing, they haven't built up anything else. And so what all this leads to is unstable states. The, the civil wars, the lack of money, the low education, the lack of bureaucratic experience, which will equal cronyism and corruption, the export-oriented economies means who's ever in charge of the government basically owns the wealth. Uh, Gaddafi in Libya is the is a perfect example. Ninety uh, percent of the economy, ninety-five percent of the economy was oil. Gaddafi was in charge of the government, and so he owned the oil contracts. And so, if you wanted to export Libyan oil as a company. You wrote a check to Gaddafi. And so what you get is dictators, which creates more civil wars. Because that dictator is then going to support his ethnic group, whether it's the majority or the minority, against the others. The dictator has no interest in democracy because then they don't make all the money. And so you get more civil wars especially in with states that have large ethnic diversities in these fake states. And the classic example of that is Congo Zaire in the 60s, where the Belgians um, left totally expecting the country to co collapse and they would be invited back in. They would come back in and run it again. They didn't want to leave. 
so they gave Afri- they gave Central Africa double middle fingers and said, fine, we'll leave. But you'll regret it. You'll want us back. And then they reinvaded in the 19, 1960. And that's the famous line in uh, Billy Joel of Belgians in the Congo. Because the Belgians left. And then they reinvaded Congo in order to run it again. Uh, the British will do the same thing in the Suez. The British and the French will hook up with the Israelis and say, um, Egypt is kicking us out, kicking us out of the Suez Canal. Well, F them. We're going to sh- we're gonna go back in and we're going to run the show. We're not done yet. And in both cases, the United States got involved and said, get out. Get out. We don't want you in Africa anymore. And Belgium and Britain and France were too poor to defy the United States. They needed the United States more than they needed the empire. And so they left. But this is the world that we have today. This is the world that I inherited, that you have inherited. That our grandparents and great-grandparents gave us. They had the chance to completely scramble the map. It would have been messy, but they had the chance to create lots of countries based on ethnic nationalities, just like Europe was, and they didn't. They continued, created new countries that completely reinforced the economic systems that helped Europe. So that we still live in a world affected by imperialism, affected by colonization. We still are affected by that world. And so when people go, oh, Africa is so uh, unstable, those Africans, and then they throw in some racist stuff. They, they can't run themselves. They're uncivilized. It's like, no, man. They haven't had a chance to make their country yet. They're figuring it out now. That's what's going on in the Middle East, in Syria, in Iraq where you're having ethnic minorities and majorities fighting it out over what kind of country they're going to have. They're fake countries. Now, the Middle East has a longer experience having these places. Syria, the borders of Syria, look a little more like medieval Syria, look a little more like ancient Syria than, say, Chad, Central African Republic, do. But not all that much. And so it's not a surprise that the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s see a world at war in sub-Saharan Africa, in the Middle East, in Asia. It's not a surprise. Because these countries are trying to figure out, one, how to live with each other, two, how to create an economy, three, how to create a bureaucracy, four, how to create democracy, which they've never had. Because even in places that they were growing a democracy, the Europeans came in and hijacked that. And so... It's not a surprise that the world 
my parents grew up in, the world I grew up in, was a violent, unstable world. And so, um, that's Africa. I know there's not that much. We'll, we'll touch on popular culture at the in another segment. Um, we're not going to get into national histories, which we're dealing with these big topics. Thank you.